Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. I'm Justin Douglas. So happy you can join me for this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Please consider checking out the Patreon page and supporting the Beyond Boundaries podcast if you're able. That's patreon.com forward slash Beyond Boundaries podcast. You can also help by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It makes a huge difference. Hope you enjoy this episode of Beyond Boundaries. I got a chance to interview Corey Walburn. He is the author of a book titled Out of Control, Victory in Surrender. I hope you enjoy the conversation. We kind of weave in and out of his story. Some subjects we handle is death and mourning and grief. We also touch on uh, infertility and just really his life journey and um, so much of what he's put into this book and ultimately what he wants to share with you. Uh, The link is in the show notes and description to find the book. It's on Amazon, all platforms. Again, Out of Control, Victory in Surrender. Here it is, my interview with Corey Walburn. So I'm here with Corey Walburn. Corey, how are you today? I'm great, Justin. How are you? I'm doing well. So Corey and I are going to talk about his book, a little bit about his story. Uh, We're just going to get into it and uh, see where it goes. So Corey, I'm going to ask you to kind of just lead us off here with maybe if people don't know who you are, they don't know anything about your story, don't know anything about your book, maybe a brief synopsis of who you are, your book, a little bit about you just so that uh, someone can come up to speed on who you are. All right. I'm a 48-year-old uh, man who uh, has spent most of my life teaching. I'm a teacher at a high school. Okay. And uh, I teach U.S. history and oh, wow. American government right now. So I've always been involved in, in history of some sort. And, I, and I, I think in some ways my story is a, is a family history. And, and I think I'm a, I'm a pretty good storyteller. Yeah. Wow. But uh, my book, really, uh, from a historical perspective, goes back to about 2009. Um, My wife and I struggled to have a child, Mm. and at the same time, my dad was diagnosed with stage four cancer. So, you know, I was uh, happy that my wife conceived, but at the same time, my dad was was dying. Mm. And I'll never forget when I was in the hospital, my parents came in, and he, he really struggled to get into the hospital. But uh, he, he felt like he had to, I'm sure, the, the obligatory, you know, grandpa coming in. Yeah. And I knew it killed him. I knew he realized that he wouldn't be around much longer. Mm. And then to a brief synopsis then, uh, raising a daughter who we were blessed to have. And then my mom, <clears throat> about 20 months after my dad had gotten cancer, also died of cancer. Oh, my so gosh. So it was a double, double whammy. And you, ha- you go through those life cycles of... Uh, and in my, in my life, I felt being in the middle of that was the story, uh, not the beginning of life where my daughter was starting and not the end of life where, where my parents ended up, but it was going to be my job to, you know, be the conduit between those who passed and, and those who are just got started. Wow. So as you're becoming a father, you're losing your father, you're, le- you're letting go of, of your father and then your mother as well, just a few couple years later, or less than a couple years later, how do you, I mean, how did you process that grief? Cause that's, that's a difficult, a difficult thing to lose a parent. Like I've been with people who have lost parents. I haven't lost my parents, but I've, I've, I've journeyed with people who have lost their parents, but to lose your parents at the same time, you're also experiencing this great joy that that's a, that's a difficult experience. Can you share for anybody who's maybe lost a parent is in the process of letting go of a parent, what you learned through that process or how you coped? Uh, I, I actually went to WebMD. If I had an addiction, okay. it was certainly trying to solve their cancer. Oh, wow. And I, I think that um, 
the experts have a lot of information. And, you know, it's, it, it is good. I think that we, we have the knowledge there. But I, I just kept going back to sit, figuring, okay, how much time do we have left? And what kind of treatments, you know, are we doing? Are we doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. And uh, I just got lost in it. It, it was, uh, in my book, I think I entitled it Paralysis. I just became paralyzed within that Mm-hmm. I, I think I tried to process it, like I knew that the end was near, but I always felt like someone could give me an answer, or I felt like I needed an answer. And I yeah. think I'm not alone uh, in that when, when parents get sick or children get sick. Yeah, yeah. So before we get too deep into your story, you're in your book's titled Out of Control. Can you give us a reason why it's titled Out of Control? I, li- I like that title. Because, and it's not out of control in a sense that you you, you, you're just spinning. It's out of control in a sense that those things that we hold most dear are usually not within our, our control. Mm. Uh, whether it's my wife, Melanie, and I struggling with fertility, and yeah. we, had, we had fertility doctors tell us, you have about a 2% chance to get pregnant uh, oh, naturally. Wow. And they told us, you know, hey, $20,000 later, we can get you a baby. Just, just trust in us. And we both mm. had difficulties, you know, as far as uh, it was, there was infertility on both of our sides. So it was almost like a double whammy. Yeah. It's quite ironic. As a, as a man, you sometimes spend your young, young manhood not trying to get ladies pregnant. Yeah. And then when you want to get a lady pregnant, yeah. your wife, you can't do it. So yeah. you, you, it, it's kind of God smiling. Um, but in, in, in that way, I think... Uh, Share with me a little bit about that, though, really quick. I, I, yeah. I want to... I feel like infertility, I'm really glad you've talked about it even just so far so openly because I feel like a lot, a lot of people I know are dealing with that, um, are dealing with wanting to get pregnant, not being able to get pregnant, going through the process of even grieving the fact that they might not be able to get pregnant, um, or having to weigh these options of, are we going to spend all this money that we don't have? But like, yeah, we don't have money, but like, we want to have children. Like, like this, it's a very difficult thing to journey through. It brings about a lot of emotions that if you've never been through the infertility process, which I want to be honest, I've never been through that. But as like I said, I've journeyed with other people who have been through it. I, I, I've, I've seen how difficult that can be and that there's that even in like churches or in communities, it can be awkward. It can be an awkward topic to bring up that, that it's, it's a private thing. So it's not something that like every, everybody, um, can relate to maybe, or that, that you're, you're concerned if you bring it up. But then when you do bring it up, I I find that like, there's more people dealing with it than you maybe knew before. So if someone is dealing with infertility, what would you like, what did you learn through that process? Cause uh, was it, was it like, a long process for you guys to get pregnant? How, how did that work? I'm just curious. We got married in, in 2005 in the spring and uh, started trying in the fall. Okay. And they say that a, a couple that is, it, it has no issues, they have about a 20% chance every cycle to get pregnant. Okay. So you go for a year, you know, because you could roll the dice and not, and, not, and not, you know, come up with a six in a sense. Sure. Um, so you wait about a year and then they say after a year, there might be some, some tr- trouble in a sense that you, you may not, one of you or both of you may have infertility issues. So we did a whole year there. So I guess that'd be the fall of 2006. And then we went to doctors to figure out what might be wrong. 
and I was drinking things. There's, there's all kinds. Some people call it snake oil, but I was drinking things to help my sperm count because yeah. I had a borderline low sperm count. My wife had an ovary that wasn't working, and they did a procedure to figure out what was going on. Mm. So when we finally went to a fertility specialist, it was almost like Dr. Spock. It's in my book. And uh, he, he was so, uh, probably a brilliant man. I'm not going to say he wasn't, but he was so cold. And when my, my, my wife was breaking down right beside me, when he starts rolling out, you have a 2% chance that we've got to do this, this, and this to get you pregnant. And she's bawling. And he's looking at me like he had never seen a woman cry before. And I, I thought to wow. myself, is this sci- are we tough enough for this science? Wow. And I think, I think there's something, Justin, you touch upon when, when couples are going through that. You know, you obviously love one another and you want to have a family. And then when you can't, it tests, n- number one, your love. But it also, it also tests whether you believe in, in, in science. Yeah. And, and, and someone promising you something that you figure you, could, you can do for yourself. Yeah. That's a helpless feeling, I think. And, and, I, and I did when I wrote in the book. Some people had, had said to me, you know, you don't know how many people struggle with infertility. So you could really touch people with that story. Yeah. Um, and, and really to delve into the story a little bit. Um, so we went about two years. I had a surgical procedure done. Okay. And um, it was supposed to improve my sperm count. But I had to wait like six months. It wouldn't improve it right away. Okay. And wouldn't you know it, two weeks after that surgery... Um, well, it was a month after, but two weeks, I'm thinking the time period, Melanie, sure. Melanie had gotten pregnant. Oh, wow. So I said, you know, and I was, it was, I was, on, I wanted to glorify science. I'm like, yeah, it worked. You know, they, they gave me this surgery and gosh darn it, we got a baby. Yeah. So then I went back six months later to happily to tell the doctor, hey, uh, you know, we're pregnant. And he's like, well, I, I don't really know how that happened because your sperm count didn't improve. <laughs> so then I got to scratching my head saying, well, I'm, I'm really happy, but you know, maybe it wasn't in their control either. Yeah. Yeah, I think you you have to science and the divine. I feel like are at work in in that. Like there's there's certainly so much science can teach us about and 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 change the odds, if you will, in that in that world. But like there's definitely a miracle. The miracle of life is real when you become a parent. Like you Absolutely. realize really quickly, wow, this is miraculous. A child being born, like it's it's a wild journey. So, what was that like? What was it like? Like, I'm sure there was so much joy, but maybe even like more fear than normal in, 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 in that pregnancy from the standpoint of like, wow, like this is, I mean, it's terrifying, I think, to be, uh, have your first child because you just don't know so much. Like I, I always, I always talk about having our first child and, and my daughter Magnolia, who's 10 now was born and, and she needed oxygen and like the, the, uh, the painting on the wall, like like came up like and like they they pulled out the oxygen bottles from behind the painting and I'm like what is happening like the bed's a transforming bed that transforms into all this stuff and then the the painting on the wall transforms and I'm just like I don't know what's happening I don't know what's going on I'm totally at the at the mercy of these nurses and doctors who are just acting like this is an everyday normal occurrence but for me it's like the the a whole new world like you know what I mean and so it can be terrifying what was that 9 month journey like for you guys as you went through that I'm sure did you, uh, did you guys have to do anything extra special because there was fertility things as far as like, I don't know much about that. Once you get pregnant, it's the same as everybody else. Or is there, is there any extra risk there? Or anything? Um, no, I mean, it was, it was a great pregnancy. Oh, Mel- okay. Melanie was, I mean, everything was fine. And great. we were, we were very happy that, uh, that she was pregnant. And then we went through, through the pregnancy. We, we wanted to have a natural childbirth. Melanie was very, uh, you know, uh, upfront about not inducing drugs there if we didn't sure. have to. Yeah. 
And I respected that. I thought, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good idea, you know? And we got a doula and she, we did hypnobirthing and yeah. I remember reading scripts and doing massages and preparing um, for, the, for the actual childbirth. And the funny thing was, my, my wife's only 5'1", I'm 6'3", and she was two weeks late. Oh, wow. And I and she was huge. I mean, to be, I mean, I guess you always think your wife's huge because you're not used to seeing her that big. But yeah. she was really big. Yeah. And I never forget my father-in-law saying, "I don't know if that baby's going to be able to come out." Yeah. And I think he was half jest, but but really half serious. Yeah. So anyway, we we had the pregnancy, and you know, we were at the <laughs> at the hospital because she had to be induced. Yeah. And um, she struggled and struggled, and no drugs. I think she was induced at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, and it was 2 uh, p.m. The next afternoon, so almost 24 hours, oh when they finally gosh. gave her the uh, epidural, when we finally said, "Yeah, we, we've got to, we've got to get some relief." And then when she had the epidural, the contractions weren't coming fast enough. So they, um, and, and and Myra, that, that's my daughter, she's also 10 years old. Yeah. Uh, Myra just wasn't coming out right, so we had to have a C-section. Yeah. Wow. So all that work we did and everything we prepared for mm. and, and thought we could sort of control again. Yeah. <laughs> we just couldn't. And I was scared. Sure, I was holding her hand, and there was that C-section, and uh, you know, you're, you're sort of that in between that happiness, like, oh my gosh, here comes our baby, versus, oh my gosh, you know, you're you're cutting my wife open here, and and I'm just trying to focus on her face. Yeah. Um, and then they pulled a purple girl up above the blind. I'm thinking she's purple. Like this is, is this okay? And they're like, it's absolutely fine. She just didn't yeah. breathe yet, so she couldn't pink up in a yeah. sense. She couldn't get the the air in her lungs. But once they did, you know, absolutely fine. Ten pound baby. She was huge. Wow. Wow. But healthy. And, and that's, and that was the bottom line for us. Wow. So, so that's even more terrifying in some sense because you, you go through that, but that's such a joy. And then now during that pregnancy is when you found out that your dad had, had cancer then? My dad was diagnosed in 07 and we found out we were pregnant in 08. So he was diagnosed. Okay. Um, okay. And I'll never forget the, the, the emergency room report because he basically lost his appetite, you know, for like a week or two. And that's not like my dad. Yeah. And uh, went to the doctor, and they had done a CAT scan, I believe. And they said, your, your liver looks like the moon. You, you, have, you have cancer. They did mm. a biopsy and confirmed it. And I'll never forget reading the report. They're saying, Mr. Walborn, a 64-year-old, nice, affable man, has basically stage 4 liver cancer. Wow. And I'm thinking, man, so, again, so scientific, but so nice, too. They complimented him right in the diagnosis. Yeah. But they said, we're going to do a cocktail of, of uh, chem- uh, chemotherapy, and it may work. It's certainly going to give you some, some time. And it did. He was diagnosed in November of 07. He died in June of 2009. Okay. So it was about an 18-month struggle mm-hmm. there or so. And Myra was born in, in March of 2009. So there's that, uh, mm. that cutoff. So um, you got to see, got to see her. He got to see her born, yeah. and uh, but it, by the time you know we were bringing her over, he was he was basically uh, bedridden. Condition. Yeah. yeah, so he couldn't get up or, or do anything per se. And then, how soon after that did your mom get diagnosed? Or mom was diagnosed in June of the next year, June of, July, sorry, of two thousand and ten. Oh wow! So she was. I mean, we were all still grieving in a sense the the loss of of dad and and then she had she had gotten sick matter of fact i think justin she was probably sick the same time he was yeah she just wasn't exhibiting any symptoms yet sure now her hers was pain like it wasn't the loss of appetite but she had pain in her shoulder and her rib cage which ended up being the lung cancer that had spread to the uh, to the mm. bone Mm. Um, so, she, you know, it's funny, too, because I think God has a way of looking down and saying, I, I think it'd been better for mom to take care of dad than dad to take care of mom. Oh, wow. And that's just the way it all, it all rolled. 
Yeah. But I have an older uh, sister and an older brother, and Lisa and Brian were, God bless them, right there all the way with me as well. And we have a very close-knit family. So, um, Did it bring you together in some ways, probably a little bit? Uh, I, I think going through that, I think it did, you know, yeah. not that we were far apart, yeah. uh, but I, I think we, you know, when you're all grieving, you go different ways sometimes in your grief, Sure. but you come together for, for, for your mom and dad. Yeah. And mom suffered more. Dad, dad had, had responded to the chemotherapy and he got some good time, Yeah. but mom went on, um, clinical trials and they told her she had to basically sign her life away because of the, the chemicals they were going to put in her was going to cause a lot of different side effects. Wow. And they said, we'll keep you on it as long as you can well, basically stand it. Yeah. So I have in my book, I, I do talk about chemical therapy on, in so many different levels because it, it did give my dad relief and, and gave us more time with him, but it sort of just really affected my mom a lot differently. Yeah. How long until your mom passed? About eight months. Eight months. Wow. So it was a little faster. It was. Was yeah. that something you guys expected and were prepared for? or? Um, you, you know, and I went and I was addicted to WebMD, so I knew yeah. lung cancer. Lung cancer at stage four is an awful son, son of a gun. And, and I knew that she probably would have a tougher road than that if, if there is such a thing as a tougher road. Uh, but... I, no, I wasn't surprised. She started to lose weight, and, and I think some of the chemotherapy really just, just knocked her for a loop. And, and to be honest with you, I think she was dying of a broken heart. I, I truly believe that when people are grieving and, yeah. and loved ones die, that if they're also sick, I think she decided to go in some ways. Yeah. I, think, I think that broken heart like syndrome or whatever, there's, there's a legitimate, I think, like medical uh, data for like broken heart syndrome or I don't know. I, all I know is I, I've read on that before and like the, the rate at which a spouse, once someone else passes, can, can even just be overcome with that, that grief and, and that it can lead to, to, uh, to them even not having as much of a purpose to live, whatever is happening psychologically that, that, that there are, um, many cases, I guess, of people who have passed shortly after, um, their significant other passes. So that's, that's really hard on you guys though. So what's your state of mind following your mother's passing? Like, where are you at as a, you, what your, your daughter's probably not even two yet coming up on uh, two. She would, she, yeah, she just had her second birthday okay. when mom passed. Yeah. And like, how are you processing that as a father of a two year old? And, and yeah, just, I just started to write. Okay. Um, to go back in my in my bio a little bit, uh, I went to the University of Pittsburgh, and I was a journalism and uh, history major. Okay. So I've always loved writing. I wrote poetry, still write it sometimes. I, okay. I just really could express myself, I think, really well in writing, and um, I started writing. And I and I wouldn't write long long passages. I would write short things yeah. of what I was feeling as a new dad, and and the joy I had, you know, having a child and re and having that responsibility. And then the sadness, the grief of, you know, what you go through. And I didn't start writing until my mom died. And I thought to myself in some ways, Justin, I thought, said, you know, this is just too odd. Like, you know, 2% is the chance they gave us to conceive. But what was the percentages of mom and dad dying that way in that short period of time? Yeah. It had to be low. Yeah. And, and you're thinking, okay, you have this ability to write. Start writing and get your feelings down on paper. And uh, it was my grief coming out, and it was my it was my joy coming out. And I also, at that time, Melly and I had had church shopped, and yeah. we had we had found a church, ironically, like three weeks before Dad passed. So the church family and the people we got to know at church, 
um, it, it got me thinking uh, again about my faith. And I, and I don't think I was very faithful for a, 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 a long period of my life. I think I had it when I was younger and I sort of drifted or went away from it. And then, then it came all rediscovering back to me. And I, and I, I often say to people, do you ever, you know, as a writer, do you ever write? And then when you read it back to yourself, don't think you've written that. Like yeah. you're a conduit, like like something sure. something more powerful than you came through you and, and, and wrote that on the paper. Yeah. And that is, to me, it just blew me away. I, I just, I thought to myself, I mean, I thought I, I'm a decent writer, but I'm like, wow, that's powerfully impressive. And it wasn't, it wasn't me. Yeah. I, I've, being uh, a musician and, and being connected to a lot of people who write music, um, I know many people who have described the experience of writing a song whether that's the lyrics and the melody, whatever it is. But like when there's this like click point where you're like, I don't even know how I wrote that. Like, I, I don't know how I got into that space, tapped into that, whatever the moment was, the energy was, whatever it was, there was something at work beyond just myself that allowed that to, to come about. I think that's true in art of all kinds, like not just writing, but in, in all kinds of art, it might be that you're painting a painting and you just tap into something that's deeper than just the science of painting. Like you can teach someone the science of painting, but there's something else there beyond just like how to paint, how to use a paintbrush. Does that make sense? That like makes that, perfect sense. That, that, that connects. And I think obviously being a journalist major, you were taught how to write. Does that make sense? Right. From a scientific, like here's how, here's how to sure. organize the words. But like when you actually have the emotion behind it of a life lived and the pain felt and the reality of those experiences, sometimes you get an opportunity to tap into something deeper and, and, and I did. Um, and I don't think I even understood at the time what I was doing. You know, I was yeah. just I was just trying to get thoughts out on paper. Did some of that become the book? It, be, it all became the it book. It all became the book. OK, so yeah. so so were you writing to write a book or were you just writing to get your thoughts out? And then like over time, you were like, maybe this is a book. How, how I, did that work for you? I wrote just to get my thoughts out. And Melanie, my wife, said, you know, you have to. You have to publish this, uh, okay. even if it's self-publishing. You spend the money and publish it because other people need to read this. Yeah. Because I would show her the bits and pieces of what I was writing just to get a, a feel for it. And, um, and it was so funny. When I went to put it together, it like all went together. Wow. Like it was already written. I just had to then place it, you know. Organize it. Organize much. it. Yeah. And I, and I think God had a, had a way of saying, listen, if you're going to be the family scribe, if I've given you some ability to write yeah. and you've experienced this, this, this high of, of, of having a child when you weren't supposed to and this low of losing your parents when you thought you weren't supposed to, mm. um, then I'm going to give you uh, an outlet here. And, I, and, and, and really, they label my book online as a self-help book. Okay. And, and I truly believe it is. I wasn't sure of that title when I first saw it, but I'm like, yeah, it's, it's self-help. Yeah. Because I transcended things um, through my faith, I think, that I would have had a hard time transcending without it. Explain that. When you say transcended things through your faith, one of the things I talk a lot about is deconstruction and reconstruction when it comes to faith. Like, maybe we have a concept of God that, as we grow in life, we outgrow that concept of God. And that's what I would consider the deconstruction. And then we reconstruct a new concept of God. And, um, and maybe that's because we just weren't aware of a lot of things and ultimately experience and relationships and uh, all of that open us up to new challenges and new questions about God and his character that, that we didn't have before. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, 
So explain to me a little bit of that, I guess, transcending in your faith. You've spoke a lot about God and faith, but tell me a little bit about what you learned about your faith through that kind of two-year window of having a child, losing your father and mother. I'm, I'm sure, I, I know some people who could get very bitter in that time toward God, and maybe that's something you dealt with or worked through. And I know some people who um, choose to find the positive, if you will, glass half empty, glass half full. Sure. How much of this is God? How much of this is just the reality of being a human being? We die, it happens. Right. Um, some people can... Some people cling to different answers. I'm just curious how you um, processed some of your doubt you were probably feeling in that time, some of the anger you might have felt. How did that go? uh, I'll tell you a story. My uh, grandparents on my father's side, uh, cancer runs throughout our family, so there's a good chance that I may may die of cancer one day, and and that's just the way it is, um, in, in a sense that that may be my lot. But my aunt, who I never knew was 18 when she got acute leukemia and died within two weeks in the hospital. Oh, wow. And my... And my dad became an only child then. His, his younger sister passed on. But my grandparents uh, turned differently. My, my grandmother went more towards the faith to get through that tragedy. And my grandfather never went back to church. So I had that history in my family of, okay, which way are you going to go? Do you hate God or do you love God amidst that, that awfulness? Yeah. And, or do you blame God or do you credit God? I mean, you know, yeah. you, you can go either way. And I think your original question was, was my transcendence. Uh, of that, I, uh, Carl Jung, you know, the, the famous philosopher, often said, and, and you can interpret this in many different ways, he said, we often miss God because we don't look low enough. Ooh, I like that. And I think that can you find God in, 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 what's, in what's around you, in, in what, you know, is what is tangible to you? I, I think sometimes we, we look too high and we, and we expect to have answers when we pray and like, okay, God, you're going to fix these problems. But I think God wants us to be patient, and I think God teaches us to be patient by finding him within, within others. Wow. And well, in the New Testament, when Jesus comes back and, and, and the word is made flesh, I mean, there's all our examples, really, yeah. to be the servant, to be patient, to be humble, and to let that roll. And, and when I was writing the book, I didn't realize that the transcendence is that is what we have to get back to. Yeah. We are so far away from that in our society in some ways that, that you know, I've had people tell me I won't read your book because I'm, uh, I don't want to even think about those things. Wow. And as a 48-year-old man, that's all I think about now. Mm. I mean, I, I think yeah. that, 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 that transcendence, how do I get better? How do I, you know, get from point A to point B? Mm. Because I was paralyzed at times. And then one of the other chapters I have in the book is growth. I, I learned how to, to grow in that. And maybe that's the journalism coming through. I was very observant when, when these things were going on. So I remembered a lot of things. Yeah. And I, and I just, you know, in the book, it's, I mean, it's there. I, I, uh, I'll tell you, here's a short story that no, to, go, ahead, to yeah. go on the transcendence thing. Certainly. Um, one of the chapters I have in the book is called The Third Floor at Hershey Med. And at that time in 2011, the third floor, get this, at Hershey Medical Center was um, half uh, labor and delivery and half maternity. And then the other half was oncology on the same floor. Wow. So as my mom, you know, mom had a stroke nine days before she died. So she's incapacitated and with a lot of people down the oncology wing. Yeah. And I'm sitting in, the, in sort of the center hub and these other wings are going out. So I'm seeing mom and dad pushing baby, you know, from one point to another. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, you have people celebrating the joy of cell division mm-hmm. while you have people cursing the horror of it. Yeah. And I thought to myself, 
if God doesn't walk on these floors, then, then, then I have no faith at all because he is alive and well right here because this is the, the cycle of life. Yeah. And I'm just witnessing it. And I'm mm. so blessed to, to see it. And I might be looking a little too deep at that, and people might say, ah, you're overthinking this, Corey. But I don't think I am. I think that's where the heart of who we are really is. Not knowing, you know, not knowing when that baby's going to come, all the due dates here, not knowing when the end date, because I've had doctors say, well, we're not really sure, we think. And gosh darn it, you do give the best guess, and I got to yeah. appreciate that. But, but that's not our timetable, Justin. It never yeah. was and never will be. Wow. So... That's an amazing, I, I sometimes say as a pastor, like you get to be a part of the highest highs and the lowest lows, like, because you get to be a part of the wedding days and you get to, you get to, you know, be there and join the family when, when they have a new child and you know what I mean? Visit them in the hospital and, uh, maybe you do a baby dedication or, you know, uh, you get to be there when people get baptized, which is exciting. You get, you get all these milestone events, but then you also get uh, the milestone tragedies. You're, the, you're, you're often the first one called too, you know what I mean? And so you, you do funerals, you, you know, counsel people who are grieving the loss of loved ones. Like you get to be part of both of those. It's, um, they're both happening. The, the quote you just said, say that one more time, that, um, that we often don't see God. Or how the it, young quote was, yeah. we often don't see God because we don't look low enough. We often don't. See, I, I love that because I think, I think that's, that really embodies the life and ministry of Jesus is to go to the lowly places, to go to the edges of society even, to, to be with the people that God would never be seen with. God would not dare be seen with the tax collector. Does that make sense? Right. But yet God is with the tax collector. God would not dare be seen with a Samaritan, let alone a woman, let sure. alone a woman uh, who, who likely has some scandal in her past. Does that make sense? And like, absolutely. And yet this is where we see Jesus. And so like, even in our deep pain and, you know, grief and questions that we might never have answers to, you know, the problem of evil is a real question, right? Absolutely. Where, how does this you know, it's very easy to get hung up on the question of like, how can an all loving, all powerful God allow sin and brokenness in this way, in the way of death in our world? Like, um, and that's a hard question. That's not something that you can just give a pithy pat answer to. Right. And sometimes, no. sometimes people do. And, that, uh, but I think what we can do is share stories and share how we were, um, impacted through, the pain and brokenness we had to experience. And hopefully that can provide some amount of comfort to people who are going through that. So how did you maybe share with someone who might be going through something like that, that has maybe thrown their faith away? Did, was there any point in that journey where you doubted your faith or where you were just like, I'm done, I'm not sure about it? Or like, it seems like you quickly pretty, pretty much pivoted to perspective of that was open to God through your grief. Whereas some people I think maybe go through a period or, or they land there where, um, God can't be real or if God is real, I don't want anything to do with God. Um, maybe just explain a little bit about how you process that. And if someone is in, is going through that process personally, what you would maybe encourage them toward. Did, did you ever think that uh, life is so much bigger than, than us? Like, we're just drops in the ocean. Yeah. And 
you know, we personalize everything. And, and we are selfish creatures. I, I know that. I, I'm no different than anybody else. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, you want to internalize that and say, well, you know, that was a pretty crappy deal. You know, it, it stunk. Your parents just retired, everything, everything to look forward to, and then they got sick and died. And they suffered. It wasn't just like, you know, okay, they, they, they died. So you, you witnessed those things. And I could, I could say to myself, you know, Corey, uh, you can get bitter. I, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a bitter person. I don't necessarily think that you have to be. I, I turned towards the Internet. I mean, I really did. I did what my, my generation and certainly the generation, you know, coming after me has always turned. Turn. Find answers. Yeah. A, 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 you know, a web search. And I think there's, I, I forgot to pray. You know, I, I didn't want to pray because I thought humans can solve this. You know, we've done so much research on cancer. Mm. Humans can solve infertility. We've done so much research on that. And I thought to myself, I don't know, I, I don't know if either one was the answer, but that's what I looked for. I think that's, that's the thing. I, I think I looked for answers in places I don't think I could find them. And I refuse to look for answers in places that I knew I could find them. And I think as humans, we do that a lot and don't even realize it. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is like, um, so I do CrossFit. And one of the things that in, uh, in the CrossFit community, there's a particular coach who talks, talks a lot about really focusing on what's in our control. And like this is with any sport, right? Sure. Um, you might tell your basketball team, the ref's calls are not in your control. What the refs choose to call and don't choose to call is not in your control. Don't give what's not in your control energy. Does that right. make sense? Sure. Focus on what is in your control. And like, so thinking of these two circles that exist in our life, here's what's in your control. Here's what you have the power to influence. And here's what's not in your control and what you don't have power to influence. It's very interesting when you apply that logic, if you will, because obviously when you watch a basketball game, Players are very concerned with what the refs are doing. Sure. Does that make sense? Sure. And they're giving it a lot of energy. Absolutely. And so are coaches. Does that make sense? Um, but, like, you have very little influence over what's going to happen there, right? Outside of now, we have challenge flags. You can throw a flag. You can, you, you can maybe influence it a little more in some, you know, in football or whatever. But when I think about that in life, and I'm like, okay, how much attention do I give to the circle that ultimately is outside of my control. Like I really don't control that. Like, right. right? Um, and it's very fascinating when you actually pause and do an inventory of what you give like energy to how much is just completely outside of your control and how much is in your control. Like it's not in my control how my kids respond, but right. it is in my control how I parent my kids. Correct. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, and so even starting to realize like, okay, how they respond, they, they get to decide that. And how I parent, how I lay parameters or boundaries or, you know, healthy things um, and options and choices in front of them um, is something that I do have control over. Like you begin to realize, oh, wow, I want a lot more control than I really have. <laughs> right. Well, we all do. Yeah. Some, yeah. some more than others, I think. But yeah. the second part of my, the title of the book, Out of Control, Victory, and Surrender, is I found that when you do surrender that, mm-hmm. you achieve, well, victory, but you, you just achieve so much more. Um, I, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm willy-nilly about that, but if I feared, if I, I feared a lot of things, and I think I, like all of us in some ways, we fear dying because it's the fear of the unknown. We yeah. don't know what it's like. We never talked to somebody who died, and they didn't come back and tell us. We're not going to be in control anymore. We're not being in control anymore. Yeah. And, you know, 
I, I don't fear that anymore. I think that's another thing. Are we a slave to fear? And in our society, in so many ways, we are a slave yeah. to fear. And we don't want to talk about things that are, like you said, in that circle of, of non-control. And that's all I do in my book is talk about the things we cannot control and being at peace with them. Yeah. Um, you have to have an awareness. I think the, it starts with having an awareness of like, whether that's mentally or actually writing it down, like there are things I can't control. Like, you know what I mean? I think sometimes we, we, we fool ourselves into thinking we literally can control everything. You don't get to control the driver next to you that cut you off. Like, mm. you're not in control of that. Like, that's that person that, that you can't control it. You can avoid it. Hopefully it doesn't impact your day. Like, but like the moment you think you have control is when road rage kicks in. And when you, sure. when you do something that later on, you're like, I'm not proud of what I did there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think... I think it starts with an awareness first and foremost that like we're not in control of everything. Right. And that is, I think that's a hard enough pill to swallow because I think we're just sold this idea that we should be in control. And when you hold on to something so tight, it's already gone in some ways too. Yeah. It sifts right through your fingers and yeah. I could try to hold on to my mom and dad, but what good would it have done? <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think it would have done any good. I mean, yeah. it was their time to die. And, and to be honest with you, there's a blessing there too. Yeah. You don't want people to live in, in, in suffering. You know, we, we yeah. put our animals down when, when, when they're suffering. Yeah. And, and, and we certainly don't do that with humans and shouldn't do that with humans, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. But I also think that, that, you know, God has a way of, 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 of making peace at that. I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, and, and looking at my mom and dad when they had passed. And, and, and obviously, you know, the struggle or the labor breathing is gone. But there's something that, that happens. It's, it, it's, 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 it's awesome to witness but as you're looking at, at the, 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 the carrier, the body, mm-hmm. like the soul is gone. Like, like, and, and, and boy, it's, it's a big void. But you're like, that's, that's peace. Like that, that, is, that is, it's an emotional moment. But I, I do believe there's, there's, a, there's a God moment there where, you're, where you realize that they're no longer with us. Like they're, they're, they've gone home and, mm-hmm. and you've had to, you, you were there at that moment. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Just like you're there at the moment your child is born and taking their first breath or looking at you with those yeah. eyes. Yeah. And you could say, again, emotional moment, surreal moment. And, and the naysayers may say, that's not a God moment. That's just your emotions kicking in. I would argue that uh, I, I have faith that it's a lot more than that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, think, I think that's really good because skeptics would say that. But like, what are emotions? Like, what, <laughs> I mean, are emotions in themselves somewhat supernatural, somewhat, sure. you know, connecting us to something beyond what's knowable who knows like and, i mean and if i should, can share a story my my mom and dad ended up in the same hospice center mm. uh it was a it's a on Linglestown road it's a very small hospice center maybe only has six beds okay but mom was still coherent enough she had a stroke she couldn't talk but sure her, her eyes she still could know where she was and i think she realized where she was it was it was called at that time carolyn um uh, Croxton Slane Hospice Center. I write about in the book, and 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 you know you want to see. Uh, there's Jung's coming down. If you want to see God look low enough, watch the people work there who are working with people that are dying on a daily wow. basis. Powerful stuff, and and the observations I got from from that, and what I could take from it was, you know, there's the New Testament. There's Jesus taking care of the lowly, taking yeah. care of the people that can't take care of themselves. And yeah. there's no question, there's no judgment. They don't judge people at all. There, it's it's what can we do for you because you are in need. Wow. And that's their that's their livelihood. I know they're getting paid to do that, but again, I I was very very impressed with them. That's a hard place to be in. Mm. I could not imagine just being around 
like working in hospice and being around death all the time. That's a, I actually um, uh, have had some conversations with some funeral directors who are around death all the time because like as a pastor, you know, I probably average, you know, three, four funerals a year. Um, and sometimes they're at the same funeral home. And so I get to talk to the funeral director as we're, you know, maybe driving to the gravesite or whatever. And, um, and, uh, it's interesting how to, to be in that world where you're constantly, you know, around death. And for them, it's interesting because it's almost an industry. <laughs> so there's, there's that piece sure. too. Right. Um, but, but that's hard. That's hard stuff. I couldn't imagine being a hospice nurse or, or a doctor working around people in that. At the same time, there's got to be joy to it in the sense that you are providing comfort in this person's, you know, biggest time of need, greatest time of need that you're, you're able to enter into that space. Yeah, that's interesting. So how... How does your story, or tell me a little bit about writing the book as far as like, so you start writing, you eventually decide I have a book. When did the book get published? How did that all go down? I know books are a pretty massive accomplishment. I, I desire to write a book someday, but I know it requires a lot of time and energy. Uh, you know, I, I my wife uh, told me to do it, so I, so I did it. I organized it. Again, a lot of it was written. Uh, I did some editing, and I had professional editors, uh, of course, help me out, but uh, it was funny, you know, I think my selfishness kicked in a little bit. I'm like, wow, this could really change somebody's life. Like, I felt like I did something really, really good, you know? Yeah. And then when I got published, uh, and I didn't do any promo, I'm a teacher, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not going on a book tour by no means, yeah. but I thought someone's going to, you know, be blown away by this. And it's funny, I don't want to say it was crickets, but it was like, okay, no one's really saying much about this. So am I, I'm off base here? Like, did I write something that no one agrees with? Yeah. Or are they just contemplating it and thinking? And I thought back to my faith. I'm like, no, it's not about me becoming famous. It's not about someone patting me on the back. Yeah. If I'm truly a humble servant and it's truly going to affect people, I'll never know it. Yeah. And I, 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 I thought that that was, again, God coming, saying, you know, having some humor and saying, Corey, you know, you shouldn't expect that. If I helped you write this book, which I truly believe God influenced this book through me, um, you're not expected to, to get accolades. Yeah. And, I and I'd love to talk to people about the book, and I have talked to people about it. But yeah. I think the greatest gift I provided was them reading it. Yeah. And I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I think I just put it out there, Justin, hoping that someone would read it and hoping that someone would take something from it. Maybe younger people sure. who are struggling with infertility, maybe people in middle age like myself um, that are losing their mom and dad because that tends to happen. Yeah. It, it, not necessarily in that order, but it, sh it, you know, it normally does. So I, I thought it was a good thing because it's, it's full of human stories. It's, it is my story, but it's, it's everybody's story. Yeah. And I, I truly believe there's the relation. And I, I didn't, I, I mean, I, I, obviously it's faith-based and I bring God and I bring Jesus into it. I didn't want to hit anybody over the head with it. Yeah. But I thought uh, the human story will, will captivate them. And I think that's what I wanted. I wanted them to get into the human story and then my take on that with my faith. Mm -hmm. And maybe in tough times or even joyous times. Again, I, I, uh, we talk about a birth of a child here that like if God plays a role in that, then let's give credit where credit is due sometimes. Definitely. And I'm not anti-science by no means, but I also don't, don't put 100% faith in that, that that's going, to, that's going to get me through the day. Sure. 
and I and I didn't you know being a, a, a journalism major, you know, I I read a lot of literature, and I the whole romantic versus the enlightenment ideas, you know, the God versus science, and and yeah. it, it gets throughout our all human history. So I think my book is, I would say, half like enlightenment and half ro- romance. Like I'll, I'll have science in the first half, and then I have more enlightenment in the second half. Yeah, and I think that that has something to do with with not maybe my education, but just the way it sort of played out. When I started to organize the chapters, it really worked out that way. There's definitely a balance there. I think even, I want to say it was episode one of the Beyond Boundaries podcast, we talked about evolution. I talked with a doctor uh, friend of mine, and we uh, we just talked about the, the science and God debate, but largely around the topic of evolution. And and uh, I want to say it was episode one, one of the first few episodes. But um, But that's such a controversial thing to be like you... For some people to to accept God is to discredit everything science, and for other people to um, believe in God is to discredit everything science. It's like it's like you have the the I guess I would say hyper fundamentalists on both sides of that, where sure. it's like I think it can be both and it can be that science is just the study of God's creation, and we're learning more about God's creation and God every day, and you know that should be informing both of these realities, not not, you know, negating one over the other, but informing both. Right. Like, that's the way I tend to look at it, at least. So, Well, and, I, and to be honest with you, it goes down. I put, I put cancer cells on the cover of the book. Um, I don't know if that's a controversy or not, but I, I thought it was down to the microscopic cells. Yeah. That if we're going to go science, you know, that's what we study, those, those things that, that, that divide into, into, you know, embryos and babies and those things that divide within our cells that 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 are, are not so good and I thought you know maybe God exists there as well and I mentioned that wow. in the, the third floor at Hershey yeah. Med you know uh, I, you know it's just it's fascinating I think those doctors who certainly study science have to understand or they do understand and and, and maybe they're on that fence like we are we're not we're not going to discredit science but we're not going to throw God away it's not all or nothing yeah and many of them I think realize that that, that God plays a lot in, in cells and, and how those cells uh, turn into us or, or actually turn against us. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so you teach, you said high school. I teach uh, U.S. history and American government at high school level. Yep. At high school level. Wow. How, how is that? That this is an interesting time to be teaching, to be teaching those. <laughs> it's awesome. I mean, I, I, uh, Government is is obviously a hot topic, and yeah, yeah. Uh, the kids are are into it. They 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 enjoy it. Pretty um, engaged, I would assume. They're engaged. And uh, you being a journalist major, I'm sure it's interesting to see how journalism and politics have have shifted and changed over the last few years. Absolutely. Obviously, you this know. isn't a, the topic of your book, but I'm just more curious as you've as you have a journalistic major, but you sure. also have history and yeah. government. Like, how's that? How's that? molding young minds today in the world that we live in. <laughs> well, where everybody used to, you know, the New York Times was, or the Washington Post was law. Like when, when they broke a story, you were doomed, right? Yeah. And today with the media the way it is, you're not necessarily doomed. I mean, fake news and real news and all these things uh, come in into one. But I think that newspapers and even books for that matter, I, I don't want to say they're outdated, but they're on the way out. I think people are getting their information from so many different places yeah. and so quickly. Twitter. They don't have to wait for the next day's edition of the newspaper to make a decision. No. And I think that is, is good in some ways and, and maybe it's bad in some ways. Oh, I think it's, I think it's good in some ways and bad in a lot of ways. Like, well, I think, I think the hard thing that I see with 
and I don't know if it's journalism necessarily, because I feel like when I say journalism, I hold that to a higher standard than like almost like, I feel like most of what we get nowadays is more like tabloidism. Like, yeah. I don't know, like it's just rush to judgment before really doing where I feel like journalism tends to vet things. But the hard, the hard reality that journalism now has is that there's, there's a clock ticking the moment you get a story and the longer you wait, someone's going to break it before you. And where you might've taken more time to verify sources and make sure things are accurate. You have a timeline right. under you that, that allows for things like fake news to become or, or misinformation, less sure. information than maybe is there. So and yeah. as, a, as a, as a public, do we, do we demand it anymore too? Uh, I don't know what we, we demand uh, 120 yeah. characters in a meme. I mean, is that enough yeah. to get, to get to the bottom of things? <laughs> you know, I, I would hope, That's I would hope question. not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, where where do you see as as somebody who uh, who's got a journalist background, politics? What do you think for the future of this next cycle? Or, I mean, you don't have to go into it if you don't want to. It's obviously I, I know it's pretty controversial, but I'm just curious what you think gets us out of this kind of like. I feel like we're not in a good place. We're very divided. Do you sense that too? Yes, uh, I think the divisiveness goes back a little ways. I don't think it's since 2016 election. Oh, I agree. Yeah, uh, we we are divisive. I, I think it comes back to whether we can see each other as Americans, hoping what's best for our country, yeah. or do we put that D or R after somebody's name and they're my enemy if they have the wrong letter after their name? Yeah. I think it's. I, I think it's awful as a, as a teacher. I mean, I, I don't let the kids know my political affiliation because I'm not teaching it that way. I'm yeah. teaching it from, from multiple perspectives. Yeah. And I think as a good teacher, you, you need to do that yeah. because you have kids all across the political spectrum right in front of you, and you just want to make sure they have um, an understanding of how to make an informed decision, right? Yeah. So I think we as teachers, I hope we do a good job with that. We don't, we don't get into the divisiveness that, sure. that surrounds, but it's almost like you just have like the Grand Canyon, and you have one group of people on top of the canyon here and one group on the other side of the canyon screaming at one another yeah. and the rest of us are in the bottom of the canyon saying what the heck's going on here yeah you know we're, the loudest voice is the person that we hear yeah. and i don't think most americans are really like that i, I think most americans are level-headed I agree. don't view people as the enemy i agree and and we can have a conversation where we disagree but still it's a productive conversation yep it's a beautiful thing of podcasts i think americans want podcasts Oh, yeah. they, they, they don't, they want to listen to people talk about big ideas. Yeah. Well, that's the other problem with journalism or with media in general is that like, if you tune in and this, by the way, is this is, I'm an equal opportunity critic of this. This is like NBC, Fox, both like I'm not, I, you know, all, all media really is you get these people with these ideas. Like, let's just say healthcare, for example, healthcare, right? Healthcare is a complicated topic. Like sure. if you're going to talk about healthcare. You're going to have to talk about prescription drugs. You're going to have to talk about insurance. You're going to have to talk about for-profit health, like, like hospitals. Um, and then you're going to try to talk about how potentially um, we want to um, allow for uh, Medicare for all or something like that. Does that make sense? So mm -hmm. let's say someone comes on a show and they want to talk about Medicare for all. You're going to ask them four questions. and They're going to have a minute for each of those answers. It's crazy. Impossible. It's not even just crazy. It's literally impossible. <laughs> like, you can't even scratch the surface. It took me a minute just to lay the groundwork for what, like, just four of the buckets that we need to be thinking about that are only four of the many buckets that we need to be thinking about. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And you need long-form podcasts, like, things like this, but there's tons of others. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Where, where you can, like, take an idea 
and then expand it out and expand it out and ask follow-up questions and hear from people's stories, people who have been uniquely impacted by something. Does that make sense? Yes. And therefore, that unique impact of their story, they have an ability to speak about it from a position of knowledge that is the experience of either the negative of that system that's broken that needs fixed or from the positive of what's happening that's good in that system that needs to be reinforced. Um, the struggle is you have to sit down for a few hours to get that knowledge. And something about, I guess, our reptilian brain, we want it in 10-second sound bites and 140 characters. And, and that's that simplicity, I don't think it exists in the complicated world we live in as we organize. There, there, there are certain things that I think are simple solutions that exist in our world, but a lot of it... It's very complicated. Like, and, and to be honest with you, we probably have a better chance of screwing things up than we have making it right. Yeah. I oh, mean, because certainly. they are such complicated things. So there, there's no simple answer. Well, especially if you give a pithy answer to a complicated <laughs> problem, and then when you get into office, you can't deliver on that because that was a pithy answer to a complicated problem. And you just gave the pithy answer because that was the only thing you could give in the soundbite that you were afforded. Right. And and that's that's the hard reality, I think, of 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 politics today, but hopefully I do think people are more open to podcasts because a couple things. One, I think reading takes a lot of time, like sitting down and reading. Um, it's a practice that we're moving away from. Yes. Whether that's, whether that's good or bad, I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying it's a reality of our experience right now. Yes. You can listen to a podcast while you're on your commute. You can listen to a podcast while you're doing laundry, while you're doing dishes, while you're around the house doing whatever you can yes. listen while you're in the shower, you can listen to a podcast. Like these are all things that you can be productive and moving forward in life, getting the tasks done that you need to get done while also educating yourself or while also connecting to someone else's story or hearing the daily news or hearing the daily sports, whatever. Does that make sense? Like you yes. can do that. I think that allows this, this type of a platform to be something that hopefully allows people to connect with longer form conversations because I think in the faith world we need to have those more the same way we're divided in the political world I think we're equally divided in the faith world right now and we need to be having we need to be sitting down talking and listening to each other more in that space I just think I think having those opportunities is gonna be best for the future like I don't I don't see a way through this without it being conversational does that make sense like, I agree it can't just be that 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 goes Democrats and Republicans and Democrats and Republicans. And when, when the right Democrat or right Republican gets in power, then everything will be right. I don't think that's how it's going to work. It's going to have to work through, I think, conversations and a mutual respect being re, refound, if you will, that I, I just don't think has existed in a while. I agree uh, wholeheartedly. The 1990s might have been the last time the Republicans and Democrats really in Washington, D.C., had moved their families there, had made a home for themselves in the city. They, of course, would go back to the constituency in their state. But by living in Washington, they would go out after, after work, in a sense, and have conversations and became friendly with one another. And when that stopped happening, they lost that social interaction, that humanness, that ability to compromise. Because they realized by hanging out, by not necessarily being on the floor of the Senate or the House, but by hanging out, let's say, at an establishment or a restaurant, they, they're, they're human. Their humanness came out. Their story came out. And I think that's when they realized, yeah, we're more alike than we are different, and that's how we can get things done. And I believe yeah. that on, on multiple levels 
needs to be. And maybe podcasts are, are going to be that wave that, that takes us there. But that, that needs to happen. And, and I think the, the, the divisiveness is caused by just not listening and just not being around one another on a, on a human level. Yeah. Because I'm a teacher, yes. But that doesn't make me everything I am. And I, and I have a journalism major and I wrote a book. But I am multi-layered as a person. Yeah. And, to, and, and in podcasts, I think you can get to those layers because you, you take more time to do it. Yeah. And I think there's where we, you know, we're like an onion. It's like Shrek. You know, I'm a, I'm a multi-layered onion and, and get to the middle of me or I can get to the middle of you and we can come to some kind of understanding of one another. We still might not agree, but we won't disrespect each other. We won't turn each other off. Well, I think the, the beauty in that is it's relational. I, one, one thing I say is like, if I know your kids' names, I'm less likely to think you're a monster. Hmm. Like, it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And not that like knowing that you have kids knowing that you're a dad, knowing that you're, you know what I mean? But just that I've got to know you on a level to where I, I know your kids' names, you know what I mean? Or their ages or, the, you know, I know a story about you and your, like, it becomes hard to intent. You have to cognitively paint someone as a monster mm-hmm. instead of just accept that person's a monster because they voted on that legislation. How dare they? Right. That, like, like, and not that there's not legislation that deeply impacts people that some people are very callous about. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. That happens in Washington all the time. But how do we come to a place to where, like, we don't just see people by the vote that they make? Like, if that's the only, if that's the only way you know this person, the only dimension you see them through, um, they are human. There is a, there is a human element. And there sure. is, like... There has to be, I also, I think it's just, honestly, we have to extend some grace to one another. Like also, I think that's another big piece of it. Like extending grace to people. And, and from that position is when most people are changed. If you really want to see transformation, if you really feel like you are on the right side of a subject or a topic or whatever, sometimes actually extending grace to the person that you deeply disagree with, even to the point of like, wow, I can't understand how you believe that or how you support that. Um, Sometimes giving that giving someone grace can be the 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 catalyst for them to be like open to something different because they feel loved, included, like they belong. Like you know what I mean. Well, we also have to look within ourselves. There's, yeah. a, there's malevolence in our heart as well as goodness. You know, we mm-hmm. can I mean, we bring up the word monster. Uh, we we all have that within us. I mean, yeah. if this is a spiritual warfare mm-hmm. between good and evil within all of us, yeah. then I guess the best place to start is is with yourself. If you want to change Definitely. the world, then you transform the world within you. One hundred percent. And I am uh, I, I'm a big U two fan. I'm 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 forty some years old, and I I love U two. And I, I don't you know Bono does a lot of um, politicking, and he hangs with people that some people say he shouldn't hang with. But I'm thinking he's extending God's grace in so many yeah. ways. Yeah. And he's getting things done because he's not saying I can't talk to you because you're this way or that way. Yeah. But their music to me, Justin, has meant so much. I love lyrics. You know, I'm a writer and poet and some things. Yeah. But you know. Their whole template was the Bible. I mean, if you yeah. listen to their lyrics and you want to go from, you can go from a secular slant or a religious slant, but I'm like, no, no, I know exactly what he's referencing there. Yeah. And I think to myself, um, you know, you, you, can, you can just live in those lyrics and those songs never go old, grow old because you can interpret them in so many different ways. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's God's grace. You talk about a, a songwriter writing a song when God walks into the room, you know, 
that's when the song happens. Yeah. So, you know, the, but the spiritual warfare that I mentioned earlier, I, I think that's so true. Like, can we take care of our own house before we worry about someone else's house? Yeah. And can we extend that grace because we feel confident in our own place? Yeah. Um, do you I, sense? Do you sense that like Generation Z, or like this next generation, is gonna? I, I don't know. My my personal take is like I'm at the top end of the millennial generation, and so I'm technically a millennial. But then like there's younger millennials, and then there's Generation Z, right? Which I think would be the ones that you're educating currently would be part of Generation Z. I sense that there's a more a more independent nature to millennials and to younger people when it comes to like politics and that independent nature being a desire to, to be more open-minded to hearing from other people. Do you sense that too? Or uh, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm inferring that, but I've just, I've just had that experience. I think, I mean, we, we constantly change, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, what we can and cannot say. I mean, as society, we develop things like, you know, words that are, that are yeah. appropriate and words that are inappropriate. Yep. But I, I think society has to do that. I think that's, that's, that's something we, we, we will do. And to see things that are happening within our society that are changing. I mean, change is hard. People sometimes resist it just because it is different. Yep. Uh, but no, I see that. I see the openness in, in the kids. They're still going through the same struggles that you and I went through. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't really change too much. But uh, there is openness uh, that I don't think was there. But I also think in some ways there's, there's, a, there's a naiveness that, that, that is lurking within yeah. that. And there's unique challenges with media yeah. and technology and social media that I didn't have to deal with at their age. Yeah. And, and the mistakes we made weren't going to be caught on camera or forever. Or, or yeah. forever. And we wouldn't post it and, and, or someone wouldn't post it. Uh, so we were, we were, it was more forgiving back then. Definitely. Um, so I think that, that, that definitely uh, is, is scary. As a, as a father of a 10-year-old, I don't know what it's going to be like in five or six more years. We, we, Myra does not have a cell phone right now because yeah. we don't think she's appro it's appropriate, but some of her friends do. And then you're, you're fighting that, keeping up yep. with the Joneses. And, and, and I don't believe she's left out. Let's but talk I, about that. I, my, I have a 10-year-old <laughs> daughter, and she does not have a cell phone. But... We let her have one of our old phones to use as like an iPod with, uh, and like she can take pictures or whatever, but it's never connected to the internet. Like right. I've like totally disabled that on it. But like she'll walk around like she has a cell phone, like she's cool, like talking on the phone. And I'm like, you're not even talking to anybody. You don't have, <laughs> like it's not even connected, but she just thinks it's so cool. And like almost her entire class has a smartphone. Yes. And I'm just like 10 years old. Wow. And I, I'm like, at what point do I think it's going to be appropriate for her to have a phone to even just call people, let alone a smartphone that would have apps and access to these things? How, how are you going to navigate that as a father? Give me some wisdom here. We're, well, we're, we're journeying through it at the same time. We are. <laughs> uh, my wife and I uh, at church, we, we lead some small groups and we talk about technology yeah. and the young and yeah. very uh, apropos. And I, you know, you, you don't want to do a disservice to your child, but you also, I, I just... Put it this way: the founders of those, uh, the, like like Apple, the smartphone, they they went to they went to the Vegas people. They went to the people that in, in Las Vegas who said, "How can we get someone to sit yep. at a slot machine mm -hmm. for five hours?" Yep. And those people won't let their kids have those cell phones because they know how addictive it is. Yeah. So I'm thinking to myself, self, when. Do you do that? When is the appropriate age? 16, 17? Because to be honest with you, the statistics, Justin, are horrifying when you look at 
bullying number one, and cutting number two, and it's predominantly young females that yep. are cutting. Yep. And I think it's because of that 24-7 bullying that is there on the internet all the time. Or that just comparison game that is that is like your best self is portrayed on Instagram yes. or Facebook when that's not really who you are, but that becomes what everyone else or what you, you see this other person that's not, you don't know the person. You don't actually know the person, but you see them. And all you see is their Instagram, their stories, their Instagram. You see the filtered self. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You don't actually see who they are. Right. But now you're comparing their filtered self to you and who you are. And all that's going to leave you with is feelings of inadequacy. I'm yes. not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not, I don't have access to the same things they have access to. And it's and, just and, this feeling you know, of inadequacy that, 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 that I think for, for young girls especially, and I'm not trying to say like guys don't struggle with this too, but that, that inadequacy I think can have huge ramifications on decision-making. And, right. And, and it may and be a general, generalization. Jonathan Haidt does a lot of work on, on this, the, the coddling of the American mind in a sense. He's talking about yep. younger people and we're not preparing them for, to be resilient adults. But he does mention how, you know, the difference between boys and girls. I mean, boys still, when there's a disagreement, will physically duke it out and then come back a, a day or two later and seem to make up and be okay. Yeah. Girls, it's, they don't necessarily do that, but it's the defamation of character. It's, it's how can I slander you? That's my weapon. And boy, that cell phone just makes it so much easier. Yeah, because I think I, I think when you get into that, I said it earlier, that reptilian part of your brain and you act quickly like that, it used to be that you didn't have a cell phone in your hand when you went into that place. Um, and now you do. Like, I normally take some time before I comment on any thread. Like, I get some, some, some Facebook posts that I'll post that then get comments that then you know, the comment section becomes a dumpster fire and you're trying to figure out if you want to respond or don't want to respond. And usually it starts with me writing a whole paragraph and then sitting back, thinking about it and then just deleting it and walking away and being like, I say whatever you want in the comment section. Like I, well, I've just learned that like there's usually an impulse there to respond in a certain way. And then like realizing like, okay, that impulse isn't healthy. And the hard thing is, is I'm 35. It's taken me a lot of my life to learn that that impulse isn't healthy. How are we to expect a 13, 14, 15 year old to have that maturity? I think when, whenever I hear of a kid doing something immature with the phone or a device, I'm like, well, of course, <laughs> like, what did you think was going to happen? Like I, well, more from the standpoint of like, I think it's amazing that every kid isn't doing that with their phone. Like, I, I think it's shocking. Like, yes. uh, you know, I, when you look back, I think the statistic I heard was like, um, when you think of like Bill Clinton and the Clinton administration, the access he had to information and the speed at which he could get it, now you have on a smartphone. Hmm. And it's like, so, so, so we've opened up in some ways Pandora's box for handing a middle schooler or even some people, an elementary aged kid, a smartphone that just, you know, 20 years ago, the president of the United States didn't even have access to that much information that, with, that, with that speed and that connectivity to other individuals that now a middle schooler has that kind of power. And that is power. And that's the hard thing, right? Because there's a privilege to it in a sense that you don't want to keep your kids from. Technology is the future. Our kids are going to have to learn to use these platforms, likely for their employment, likely to to, to get ahead in the world, right? Like, um, I even think of all the great things that social media provides me, a platform for this to even go out and be shared to other people. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so, So social media itself isn't evil, but how we use it, how we interact with it. It's a unique 
world of parenting that we're diving into, how we guide our kids down that road, even well, as it is a road that we're traveling ourselves so that we don't know how to travel. And, and we're fumbling I mean, yeah. because everything has changed so much that we don't know what's going on. It changes from year to year, month to month, and we're trying to do the best we can. But we're a generation that I would argue is experiencing this so for the first time and, and no generation probably uh, had to deal with rapid communication at your fingertips, rapid information too. You know, what do you need a teacher yeah. for? You know, look up the answer on the cell phone if you really want it. You know, you have that at your fingertips. Yep. I always thought as a teacher, my job was not to have the answers. It was to have the questions, like the good questions. Yeah. And it make and make kids think. So maybe maybe not something like what's the capital of Arizona? You know, not a, not a recall kind of. Uh, you know, let's go let's go down the the. Uh, um, I can't think of what I'm. The, the uh, hierarchy of questioning. You know. Yeah. I, you know, I just, it, it, it's, it's almost stupefying to know what these uh, younger people have in their hands that, that, that can help them, but also their temporal lobes aren't formed and they're, they're going to make really, really poor decisions and we should expect them to do that. But what kind of decisions can you make that could, you know, I don't want to say ruin your life, but, but alter your life in, in some ways. Well, and that's the thing because we live in a, a world now where scapegoating becomes the next thing. You get deplatformed, scapegoated, whatever. The moment a kid makes a comment of any kind, let's say, let's say a kid makes a racist comment on their Facebook or their Twitter or their Instagram, I think that's terrible. I think that student sh- should be talked to about it. I think it should be the student should know the severity of what they talked about or what they said and, and, and why that's hurtful, why that's not okay. I think ruining that kid's life um, maybe ruining their ability to get into college (laughs) Hmm. Um, maybe not the stimulus or reaction we want to have in a society that would hopefully allow people the opportunity to learn from their mistakes like and I think sometimes just the the mob that can come at somebody who, who, who makes a decision like that um, can sometimes negate the learning experience that's possible. Right? I, I, I agree. In Pennsylvania, I know, has changed some of their laws. Uh, they were dealing maybe five or six years ago with, with younger kids taking, taking pictures of themselves and then sending it out, yeah. and, and that could be considered child pornography and trafficking yeah. in that. That's yeah. a huge offense that can ruin your life. Yeah. So they were thinking about, okay, they're not making good decisions. We don't want to ruin their life. But again, uh, you got to have, I guess, some consequence for that because yeah. there has to be some reason not to do it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah that's scary. That's scary stuff. It's scary stuff. It's hard. And I think this is where we get back to even the title of your book, like out of control, like these platforms even are in a certain sense out of our control. Like we do our best to guide our kids on it. We shield them from what they need to be shielded from. But then even when we do open up, like there's a certain element of it that is out of our control. Like you, like when I just think about, I'm, I'm just hoping that I'm giving my, my kids the tools they need, hopefully to some extent, to some extent, the the confidence, you know, to uh, to journey through that in a way that 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 maybe won't have some of the negative impacts that they'll have. Maybe, you know, self-image will be will be you know um, a, a good image of themselves, a good a good self-esteem before 
just opening them up to that world. But I know it's coming, you know, and that's the, that's the hard reality. Well, I also think uh, where we turn, I mean, uh, your church family should be extremely important in, in that for your kids. Yeah. They say that if you can match up your child with five adults who aren't related to that child yeah. and they they care about that child and they, they take an interest in that child, yeah. that's such a huge advantage. Yeah, that's the orange theory the orange, study. The orange study. movement, you're yeah, right. The, the, the orange theory study. We, we, we love orange at the Belong Collective, so like we're all about it. Yeah, I've been to Orange Conference a couple times. It's really, really good. Um, and I think that was the study done out of Fuller Seminary even that, 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 that came to that conclusion of the, the, um, a child is, is less likely to lose their, their faith connection and more likely to, 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 to make it through um, high school with, with less, I guess, of a struggle if they have those five connections right. to adults, like meaningful connections to adults. And if, um, and if life beyond is beyond those parent, beyond their parents, if life is more hectic now, or, or there's more access to things that we don't want our kids to have, then can they lean on their faith? Can they lean on those faithful people yeah. to help guide them through it? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what, that's what we're, I mean, Myra has been involved in the church since she was born. So yeah. she's an active part of it. And my wife is a musician. So she's in the praise band and she's constantly doing things and we're running small groups at times and sometimes we're just members of small groups, but anything you can do to, to yeah. add that I think is, is important. And I, I feel, I don't feel bad. Well, maybe I do feel bad in some sense that there are kids that just don't have that opportunity yeah. and that, and that, and that I don't want to say hurts them, but it certainly doesn't make it any easier for them. Well, I think I would say this is a great opportunity to think of the two circles. It's out of my control what my kid does, but what is in my control is that I could put them in an atmosphere where they're going to have healthy adult influences. And I'm going to try my best to connect them to healthy adult influences, whether that is their Sunday school teacher, their softball coach, their teacher at school, like their principal, whatever. I'm going to try my best to forge some healthy adult relationships with positive people who are hopefully going to have an impact in their faith, in their life, in their drive to, to, to do better, to go beyond their limits. Like whatever that is, sure. I think all, all those touch points provide a support system without like necessarily I think of the support system I had of, of many adults and I don't know I mean I'm sure it was intentional on my parents part but I don't think it was like intentional in like a mathematical equation like we need this type of adult over here and we need like but you know right. I had I had them across multiple generations of people that had influence in my life that 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 uh that spoke into me as a young person and that I could go to if I had if I had something that I was dealing with and I think I think having that mentorship, if you will, or that just support makes all the difference. Like in a world that is out of control in a lot of ways, sometimes that makes you feel like there is some order. And, we, I mean? and I think we had communities uh, to, to make pick up the slack. Like our parents maybe didn't have to be as intentional yeah. because there was people constantly around us, those adults that, that cared for us, that wanted us to grow up and become young men and young women. In today's fragmented society or technology-driven society, you don't see the kids outside as much. You don't, you don't have those neighborhood groups or that community yeah. that supports that. So Orange, I think, is thinking about that, you know, going from a, a big picture to saying, well, we've got to make sure if, if we can be a part of that to replace that. Yes. Uh, that's that's got to be the uh, picking up the slack, so to speak. Yeah, and I think that even is connected to technology in that we are more connected than ever, but we're lonelier than ever. Hmm. Does that make sense? Like, and, and, and that seems to just be a true statistic of millennials in general. Like millennials seem to be a very lonely generation. We're not, we are connected to all of our friends that we went to college with via Facebook or via Instagram, but we're not 
if you ask a lot of millennials who's your best friend, they're like, I don't know if I have a best friend. Like, right. wow, you don't have a best friend? Like, why don't you have a best friend? Like, well, I mean, I have friends, but I don't have a best friend. Like, I don't mm-hmm. have anybody that I can go that deep with. Like, and I think that's a problem. I think we should. We should have people we can be vulnerable with, that we can be honest with, that we can share our, you know, greatest joys and deepest sorrows with and, and, and go deep with people. You know what I'm saying? Like, we should have that. And I think that was a more natural occurrence or expected occurrence when I was growing up than it is necessarily now for kids that I see growing up. I don't, I don't see that as much because I think that inch deep connection of the virtual connection mm-hmm. and having a lot of inch deep, does that make sense? Yes. Seems to be the economy. Like, does that make sense? Like how many followers do I have? How many friends do I have? Mm-hmm. How many, you know, um, then necessarily the depth of a relationship you might have with one or two or three people. Right. And I think we need those deep relationships. I think when life gets out of control, like when, when you go through grief, when you, when you have this moment of celebration, like who are you going to celebrate that with that? Like, wow, we're pregnant. Like, right. Who's the, who's the first few people you call? Yeah, certainly your family, but like, do you have friends that like, or is it just a Facebook post and then a bunch of people like it and you move on? Like, right. That's not as connecting, I think, as... Well, isn't that some, saying something about us of wanting that acknowledgement or, or wanting to feel like we matter versus yeah. knowing we matter? Mm. Because, again, can yeah. you take care of yourself? I, I saw a special on uh, Studio 54 back in the 1970s, <sighs> and you had Michael Jackson sitting in this one room, and they're, they're interviewing him because Michael was, was obviously very popular. Yeah. But he's only like 18 or 19 years old in this video. And he's sitting there in a room and the music's pumping, you know, it's, it's the disco era. And they're asking Mike, you know, like, what do you like about Studio 54? And Michael says, uh, it's escapism. It's my fantasy world. And this is long before he builds Neverland. Oh, this wow. is long before he sort yeah. of has, his, I mean, he was trying, I think, to hide or escape himself. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, you can't do that. You're, you're going to find up, you're going to find wherever you go, mm. you are. And I think there's, you know, and that's what I think. Uh, when, when you're faced with cancer or infertility, you go to places to escape yourself and you don't start to look in the mirror and say, you know, how am I going to deal with this? Yeah. And I think that's self-transcendence. As a pastor, I'm sure you, you, you deal with that. Uh, but, I mean, hey, the devil's in church every Sunday, right? He's in the, the pews where no one's sitting. Yeah. And, he's, and, you know, in some ways he's, he's laughing. Like, ha, ha, I, I, I did it, right? You want to see a full, a full church and it's not full. Like, yeah. that, that, that constant... You know, do I get up on Sunday to go to church or do I not? Do I just lay in bed because, you know what, that's the easier thing to do? Yeah. Or do I make my, my faith a priority in my life? Because that's more difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think I made faith a priority and it, 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 it wrote a book of God's mm-hmm. words, not mine, that I hope can help other people transcend some of the tragedies. I mean, the tragedies are coming, Justin. Yeah. It's only a matter of time. Well, that's Your parents the, are going to die sometime, and you're going to have to deal with that. That's the truth. <laughs> yeah. I, well, that is the truth. Like, if you've, if you've ever lost someone and gone through a tragedy, then you know in any moment that can happen. And that can lead to great anxiety, right, and mm-hmm. fear. But it can also just lead to an acknowledgement of the fact that there's certain things in life that are out of our control. Um. I think we have to, I think when you talk about Michael Jackson's escapism or just escapism in general, for so much, I think what we are escape, escaping is that reality. 
Like mm-hmm. we don't want to be, we don't want to be reminded that we're going to die. <laughs> That's not, it's weird how much, um, how awkward people are at funerals. And I'll talk very bluntly about death when I, you know, give a sermon at a funeral. Um, and just how people are grieving, but at the same time, people are kind of squirming. Like I don't mm. want to come face to face with death. And Mortality. This is, a, this is a day where I have to come <laughs> face to face with the fact that like one day I'm not going to be here, but I've convinced myself I'm the center of here. Like, you know what I mean? Like, wow. <laughs> like, and, 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 and hold on. You mean everything keeps going after I leave? Like, mm-hmm. how does that work? Like, oh, so they're going to have one celebration party and cry about me and share stories. And then it's just move on. I don't think we want to come face to face with that because I think we, we long for more. We long for something deeper than just this life, which I think should probably inform us that maybe there is something more, right? Um, I I would hope that maybe that might be a good answer. Um, But I think also... We, we, we come face to face with the reality that we give a lot of our effort and time and energy to things that aren't really building a legacy, <laughs> that aren't really leaving an impact. And it can be hard to come face to face with that. And it's easier to escape to a video game, to a social media, to Netflix, to becoming so busy with work that we work 70 hours a week, but we don't give th- time to the things that matter. Mm-hmm. We can escape in all different directions. And it's not that any of them in themselves are bad. Work is good. Social media is not the devil. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? It's not that any one of them are, 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 are evil. It's that the way in which we pursue those things, I think, um, as an escape from not wanting to feel the emotions and the pain and the, you know, experience that, what I think is so interesting is we live in a world like so, someone told me this and I thought it was so interesting. If you walk into like Walmart just or any, you know, uh, box store, whatever, like Target, whatever. And you look at about 90 percent of what they're sell- selling is promising it will alleviate your pain <laughs> or um, or better you. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're walking down the aisle. that's like this will take away your pain or this will make you feel better about yourself or this, you know, and like what I think is interesting or what I'm learning. And especially in the last few years is that sometimes journeying through painful, hard things and not trying to alleviate it, but feeling it is like the biggest growth opportunity for a person. But we have so much around us constantly saying, you don't have to feel that pain. You don't have to experience that. You don't have to journey through that. Um, and I think doing hard things, especially when we do them in community, can teach us a lot about ourselves and about how we support one another. And we can just learn a lot about what it means to be human from that place. Whereas you just numb it and don't feel it. And like you don't really get the lessons that pain teaches you because pain does teach you lessons. You learned lessons through the pain of infertility. I'm sure that, that you can encourage others toward, uh, toward learning or, or guide them down the path that they're going on. If they're going through infertility, you have, if you will, arrows in your quiver that I don't have because you went through that. Like, does that make sense? You have stories to tell. Um, you've lost both your parents. You have stories to tell. You have, um, things you've experienced that you've had to come face to face with. 
But I think the moment you just numb it, you run to either, you know, people can run to substances, people can run to whatever, right? Um, from that place, I think you, you, you can miss the lesson. I don't know. Well, is there a lesson in hurting? And, and I would argue, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I agree with it. One of the sections is called growth. I grew because, because, uh, of joy and sorrow. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I didn't numb it. Uh, I didn't want to numb it. You know, some people often say, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss when, when, when someone dies and that's a normal thing to say, but maybe they should say, I was so happy you knew that person. You know, maybe that's a better response. I'm so happy they were in your life. I'm so happy that they had a chance to make an impact upon you. Maybe that's what we should say and really mean it. Because, gosh, I mean, if you hurt inside, that means you, you were truly loved. And you truly love somebody else. Yeah. And you talked about maybe uh, the generations coming up that, that it's, uh, it's really thin. You know, there's no deeper relationship or deeper meaning. But boy, you know, we have so many examples of deeper love out there. Yeah. But if you're not... If you're not exposed to it, and, and if you don't want to learn it, if you just want to run away from it, I mean, don't you think sometimes, Justin, we're either running toward God or we're running away from God? There's, yeah. there's very little in between. Yeah, I agree. And I, I want to run towards God. And I've run, done enough running away. I'm not, I'm not a saint. Yeah. But the sinners and saints, I mean, we, 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 we play that game. And I think we sometimes we're unconsciously playing it, but sometimes we know exactly what we're doing. Yeah. And, uh yeah, I, that's 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 the real deal. Running toward God is something I thought would uh, would would make me grow because I ran away long enough. Mm. Did would you say you you ran away during the time of the infertility or like what what was the explain a little bit about I, that? Well, I think sometimes when you know, I, I mean, you said you leaned a lot on WebMD, like you just were going to try to control and get the answers, and I can fix this. I think sometimes we have that like power complex of like, I'm in control. I can fix this. I can, I, I and, and not go to God in prayer or not, not seek, uh, answers in a different, you well, know, we way. live in a society that, that, that tells us we have the answers, you know, yeah. I, I think that when we buy that, we buy it and say, Oh, hook, line and sinker, they'll, they'll give you a baby, just you know, $20,000 and, you know, go through these processes and, you know, We'll wash this many sperm and we'll put it in a test tube and we'll make it happen. And gosh darn it, they can do those things. People yeah. that were infertile 150 years ago, you're not going to have a child. Yeah. And there's a lesson in that too, because being infertile doesn't necessarily lessen you. But I think in our society, we look at uh, how am I defective when we should look at how am I me? Like, how am I the real deal? Like, this is who I am. Wow. And if God wants me to have a child, God will, 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 will bestow a child on me. I mean, Abraham's how old? 90 some 100 years old. I mean, yeah. he's having kids and people are like, story, fairy tale. But, but I mean, the lesson's there, you know. The lesson is patience. Yeah. The lesson is, are you listening? Because I think sometimes we cry out to God, but we don't want to hear God. Mm. And, I, and I, I, you know, I, that to me is one of our biggest, and maybe that's what when we talked about the politics, people are screaming so loud, they're, they're not, not even listening. willing to listen. Yeah. They're hearing their own voice echo in their head, and they believe they're so right. And how about just one day you wake up and you know what? You're not right. <laughs> You're just wrong. Yeah. We're wrong a lot, a lot of things. And I think our pro- pride gets in the way. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, do, you, do you find it ironic? It's not, I don't think it's ironic, but do you find it interesting that, you know, you have... In Genesis, you have the world made, and then you have these two creatures that God makes, and then they betray paradise. They mm-hmm. fall from paradise, right? Mm-hmm. Betrayed by the devil. But they have these two human beings, these two sons, who are real people, right? Real human beings. Mm-hmm. And what do they do? 
one has God's favor and one doesn't, and the one who doesn't has God's favor can't look at himself in the mirror and say, what am I doing wrong? It's that son of a gun that shouldn't be getting these favors. I'm going to kill him. Yeah. I mean, right there it is. Isn't that the fall of man and the idea right there? And then that's what we got to deal with. We got to transcend that, a fall from paradise and how we kill our own brothers and sisters. Yeah. And that gets really kind of deep. And we don't have another hour and a half to two hours to talk about that. But yeah. I really do think about that sometimes. I'm like, that's what I got to transcend. That's what you have to transcend. Yeah. And uh, it all starts within and, and looking in the mirror and trying to yeah. be a better person and, and trying to find something in God's words. And I have, I, I had two scriptures that, that come out of my book that okay. are just, in my opinion, so powerful. Matthew 16, 25, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Definitely. And then 1 Corinthians, which I find so interesting. You know, 1 Corinthians is the love is patient, love is kind, the wedding thing. Yeah, yeah. But they never get to 13.12. Maybe they skip it. I don't know if they do it or not. But on, on Corinthians 13.12, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I also am known. Yeah. I don't have the answers, Justin, and I may never have the answers, mm. but am I okay with that? Mm. Because I will know someday, and I don't think it's going to be here. Wow. And I truly try to keep those things to my heart, that, uh, that if I lose my life for God, I'll, I'll never lose it. And if I can just be patient enough to see through that glass darkly. I'm seeing fuzziness. I sort of have an idea, but I can't see clear cut. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, where, there's my book. Can you have the patience? Can you surrender to that? It's all there in 85 pages. Probably read it in one night. Yeah. <laughs> So I've got, I, I see the book here. Can, can, I, can, I, can I hold it real quick? Sure. So Out of Control, Victory and Surrender. I'm holding it in my hands. Uh, if they want to purchase this book, where should they go? What should they do? Uh, online. So Amazon? Amazon. Amazon? Okay. Yep. Amazon.com. Corey Walburn. It's W-A-L-B-O-R-N-C-O-R-Y for Corey. And, uh, and yeah, they can just buy it. They can just buy it there. They can just buy it there. Awesome. They, can, they can read it online too, I guess. Uh, oh, so you have like an ebook option? Ebook option, yeah. Do the ebook option? Yeah, okay. Very cool. Do you have like a, a social media you want people to follow or a website or anything like that that you want people to go to? Or is just the that's where they can get the book? That's the follow up you have for them? No, I'm, I'm, I don't have any website, but yeah. uh, just want them to, to get out there, read it, and you know, see what they think. Great. Well, Corey, it's been great talking to you. We kind of weaved in and out of a bunch of different topics. That's the way this goes. Beyond boundaries, we go beyond all the boundaries. (laughs) Thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. Appreciate it. So excited you could join me for this episode of the podcast. Huge thanks for Corey Wabern being on with me on this episode and sharing his story and his book with us. You can read the book, Out of Control, Victory and Surrender. The link is in the show notes at pastorjustindouglas.com or you can find it in the episode description. Also, I have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash beyond boundaries podcast. If you want to and are able to support the show financially, that would be amazing. You can also support the show by subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing, getting the word out really does mean a lot. And I'm always thankful when I see others uh, sharing episodes or rating or commenting, any of that. So please go out and do that. And may you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas and championing belonging.